0: keeping up with the research and then applying it to your clinical practice is hard. That's where we come
1: in. I'm Sarah Cavallaro, and I'm Mim Rodder and we are paediatric OTs who through this Research and Reality podcast aim to help you better examine the research and then interpret that into the practicalities of reality for the families you work with.
0: So join us for the adventure.
1: Hello Ellen. For our listeners, this is super duper bonus episode we haven't even warned you that you're getting this episode and the other part of this bonus is our other special guests we're just releasing to our Patreon supporters but because we're so excited about having Ellen on I hope she doesn't don't feel nervous about this Ellen but we're making this available to all our listeners I think this will just be a really lovely conversation and I've heard very good things about you Ellen. Ellen is a fourth year speech pathology student And you identify as autistic. Is that correct, Ellen? Yeah. And the reason I got in touch with Ellen was my speech pathology sister runs a clinic at Australian Catholic University where Ellen has been a student. And Ellen very kindly agreed to be on the podcast. Our first question, Ellen, is can you just tell us about yourself and if you're happy to, particularly your experience personally with autism?
2: sure i'm in my final year of speech pathology i'm absolutely loving it it's been a long time but i'm excited to get out into the workforce and be doing what i love and getting paid for it it's very exciting my own experience with autism was i grew up with a sibling who was autistic and they were diagnosed quite young they met a lot of kind of the stereotypical behaviors and had quite global delays, but in contrast, we were quite different from each other. She's very sensory seeking. I'm completely sensory avoidant. She had global delays. I had very advanced language skills when I was quite young, so I kind of flew under the radar mm. in a lot of that regard, and I was quite high masking for all of my life, really. So I didn't really notice until quite recently, actually, a couple of years ago. I went to my doctor for something entirely unrelated and noticed in her report that she'd written me, oh, there's some neurodivergent tendencies and, oh, I wonder what that means. Mm. So I went back the next week and said, do I need to look into this further? What do you mean by that exactly? Do you mean I'm just a bit quirky or do you think there's something bigger bigger going on? She said, you do definitely have some autistic traits that I've noticed in our sessions it might be worth you going away and doing some research yourself and deciding if this is something that you're interested in pursuing.
0: Had you um, already started studying speech pathology at that stage, Ellen? Had, yes. I was yeah. in my, I think, 30. year. Okay. I yep. You, yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I'd kind of like was working in – Outside of school hours care, yep. got along really well with all the autistic and ADHD kids. <laughs> Just thought I was really good at working with them. yeah didn't want to raise any yes. flags, anything like that. But I went and did all this research. I have access to journal articles. So yeah. I went and read some of those, as well as learning from advocates yes. in the community and looking at their personal experiences, Probably particularly diagnosed if you
0: had opened up something like the yellow ladybugs. You probably yeah. would have gone, oh, that was me, that was me, that was me, that was me. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Everything I was kind of reading and hearing, it was like, oh, that was my entire childhood. And yes. that's so much of how I feel now. And
0: yes. And yeah. can I ask Ellen, it's really interesting because I have had a few clients who have been diagnosed late after mm-hmm. a sibling who was much more globally delayed was diagnosed early. How did that kind of sit with you? Did you feel an affinity with the diagnosis straight away or did you feel like it belonged to your sister? I think because we were so
2: different, it hadn't even really crossed my mind mm. that that was a possibility. Yeah. It was kind of that thing of like when you tell someone, no, but you don't remind me at all yes. of my three-year-old yes. nephew. Yeah. Well, of course I don't because I'm not if a three-year-old met boy. One autistic person,
0: you've <laughs> met one autistic person. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
2: Yeah, and it just kind of wasn't what I was accustomed to seeing as autistic traits, but the more I kind of looked at particularly people who I guess demographically are lined a bit more with people who are working and late diagnosed and women, and the more I read those experiences and I kind of never kind of came across anything that was, oh, I've never felt that ever. Just everything was lining
1: up.
0: Everything felt like it was fitting.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And did you pursue a formal diagnosis from there? At the moment I've chosen not to.
2: I feel like where I'm at currently it's in my better interest to kind of keep that a little bit myself. I guess entering the workforce, finishing uni, it means I don't, I guess, have to disclose it because I don't mm. technically have a diagnosis. Already in uni I've kind of experienced some less than ideal kind of opinions and attitudes towards it. Mm. Um,
0: when you have disclosed it to somebody, Ellen, or just in general people talking about it
2: mostly in general I have other disabilities as well and there's been times when I've disclosed them and it's knock on right mm. so it's just kind of like oh I don't know unless I'm kind of already in that situation no I can trust someone with that information yep. yeah 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 it's a kind of a big risk for I guess a lot of the time minimal support that I'd be asking for yeah
0: oh. yeah oh. it's the way up isn't it? Yeah. Between what do you need but yeah versus how can you advocate for yourself. I yeah. guess certainly in my research following autistic advocates, they are absolutely welcoming of anybody with a self-diagnosis or a self-identification. I'm really curious how you feel about that and whether or not you would pursue something formal in the future.
2: I think in an ideal world, I
0: would. Like certainty, yes, um, yes,
2: then, you know, then it's in a nice box and it can kind of go away, yeah. Yep. Um, but I think at the moment, yep. I'm kind of happy in myself, yeah. like, I've done yep. enough research that yes. I feel yes. like I'm well equipped to make that decision. Yes, I've talked to people who've been in my life for years, my parents, and yeah, I think can kind of trace back traits and. I feel like my reasoning is very sound, yes, and mm. so that's enough for me personally.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely.
2: But it was very nice, kind of coming into that community and being told that that's okay—that you don't have a formal yes. diagnosis as well, mm. yes, and you are allowed absolutely. to explore. And yeah, there is not specific criteria
0: yeah. necessarily,
2: and just the freedom to be able to say, "Oh, I actually know my brain better than a medical professional who's met me like
1: an hour ago." Yes, yeah. absolutely.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That is beautiful.
1: You were talking about your experience at university, which leads us into the second question. What has been your experience as an autistic university student and what are universities? And if you want to, you can even reflect back on the school system, but what are they doing right and what do they need to do to be more neurodiversity affirming in your experience?
2: Most of my reflections are probably on uni because when I was in primary school, I had absolutely no idea. Mm -hmm. And I think I was so high masking that a lot of my teachers probably were we'll be shocked,
0: maybe, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I definitely was quite a shy kid and quite reserved, and had a lot of anxiety growing up. But was always really good at school. Was always really academic. I kind of flew under the radar, I guess. Didn't have any like challenging behaviors. So it was mostly coming into university when I became aware that I was autistic that I started thinking of what accommodations do I need? What do I have access to? What does that look like? Advocating. For myself in those situations, I've had a lot of really good experiences with individual lecturers. I've had several that I've gone to and said, hey, this is what's going on in my life. I'm trialling these accommodations. Things like wearing noise, cancelling earphones in classes, big lecture halls, being able to get up and leave the class kind of suddenly if I need to, those sort of things. And at that level, they've all been really supportive and
0: really on board, which has been great. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask a little side question there, Ellen? Mm-hmm. Tell me how it feels to be able to make accommodations after lots and lots of years of not making accommodations. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think about that beautiful example of being able to leave if you're feeling overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Before you had the understanding about your brain being autistic, did you feel overwhelmed but felt like you couldn't leave or did you not realise that that feeling was being overwhelmed?
2: I think it was probably a bit of both. Yeah. When I was quite young, like I've been going to therapy and kind of receiving... Assistance with mental health and a lot of that was to do with anxiety. Mm. And I look back now and question necessarily if it was all anxiety. Mm. I think looking back, I attributed, and I guess a lot of the people around me was she's just really anxious. And looking back and kind of knowing what I know now, oh, that was probably actually Mm. me being overwhelmed and Mm. probably more of a meltdown, shutdown Mm. versus I'm actually really stressed and it's an anxiety response. Yeah, so I probably always felt that but attributed it something else and just thought I'll just have to push through and everyone else feels this way yeah I'm sure it's fine I've just got to get on with life
0: yes and does it feel strange to you now to give yourself permission to make accommodations after so many years of sucking it up (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's kind
2: of hard to justify it sometimes. Yes. There's times where, like, I kind of wish I could turn the mask on a bit easier.
0: Because that was my other question that I've just written. (laughs) I'm sure you knew where I was going with that. Was, yeah, tell me about masking and unmasking and that process for you. And Mm -hmm. I always tell my autistic clients that masking is really useful And it's a great tool to have in your toolbox, but it's really effortful. So you need to choose the times (laughs) that you're going to mask for and then allow yourself enough recharge time or unmask time to balance it out. Is that the right advice? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm quite glad that I have masking skills. Yes.
2: Um, yeah. Just because, unfortunately, we do live in a world and in a society where yes.
0: it's you know, you're expected to yeah. look a
2: certain way and yes. act a certain way. And yes. yeah, depending on what situation. And there's a lot of discourse in particularly the American um, autistic community mm. at the moment about mm. the freedom that Black autistic people have um, with unmasking. Mm. And there's lots of situations where that's actually entirely unsafe. And so they don't have that same freedom. Yeah. And to a much much lesser degree, I do need to be able to mask to go to work and to study and to keep friends and yeah. keep relationships. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I definitely probably do it less now that I'm aware that I'm doing it. Yeah. And I seek out those yeah. opportunities to be yeah. able to unmask throughout my day.
0: Yeah. And have people close to you asked you questions about that or have people – close to you, noticed the unmasking and maybe that you're responding to them in a different way or to a situation in a different way than you were before?
2: I think people, most of my uni friends, when I kind of brought up with them, oh, I found out I'm autistic, they are like, oh, that's good because we were kind of already seeing some things and we thought you were already aware. They said I'd come out of classes Kind of before I knew, and I'd just zone out for twenty minutes, and I had no idea where I was doing that. Yeah. Whereas now I still come out of classes, but I'm a bit <laughs> less dead, and I can notice when I'm zoning out. But yeah. I was on placement. Usually, that yeah. half an hour of lunch break, I spend sitting with other people, but I'm just kind of staring off yeah. into yeah nothing, and it's You're just not my...
0: participating in the group conversation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, this is my half an hour to reset yeah.
2: and not have yeah. to mask.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And when you talk about that zoning out, Ellen, I'm really curious as to whether you think that is a dorsal vagal pathway. So is it Mm -hmm. a freeze, I'm so stressed that I'm frozen, or is it almost like a hypo arousal of actually I just need – kind of go low as a self-preservation i think it's a bit of
2: both depending mm. exactly on what the situation is yeah there's definitely times where i zone out because i'm overstimulated and there's too much going on i'm yeah. too yeah. kind of overwhelmed which is um, that real tend... kind of
0: dorsal vagal
2: yeah. yeah yeah i personally tend more towards shutting down versus melting down yeah so that's more what that looks like for me yeah. um But I think particularly now that I know that I'm autistic, I definitely give myself Mm. space to kind of stop
0: before it gets to that point. So it's actually a strategy, that zoning out, rather than a sympathetic nervous system response. Yeah, Yeah, good one. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's really interesting because I have a 14-year-old autistic girl and school is really, really stressful for her at the moment. And her mum said to me today, oh, and the teachers say she's falling asleep in class. And I was just like, like just all my alarms were going off going, actually, this is unsustainable. Like this kid is in a dorsal vagal freeze response. She's not sleeping. (laughs) Her body is shutting down. We need to really just up the ante on all of our strategies so it's why it's in the front of my mind because I actually yes. had the discussion today about that so yeah it's really fascinating mm. can I ask sorry Mim I'm totally the other thing I want to ask Ellen is so if anybody close to you has said not autistic how are you autistic Or if you have kind of come across any of those kind of negative connotations.
2: Yeah, I definitely have had some people who've known me for years and they thought of me a certain way and then Mm. I kind of came to them and was, oh, this is, yeah, again, like after lots of research. Yes, yep. and. I yep. felt was very well-founded and yep. they're like, oh, no, that's not the case. Yes. Like you're just a bit quirky or you're just anxious or, Yeah. oh, no, but you're so good at connecting with people and you make eye contact all the time and kind of all of those kind of responses. I um, do. I
0: know them all because all happens. the paediatricians <laughs> tell me all the time about my beautiful girls that I send to them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> And I'm like, have you read anything written by autistic? Anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is my little soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> and have you done a? Can I ask, have you done a paediatric placement? Yeah. And what changed for you when you got a diagnosis in terms of the way you think about speech pathology and in particular how you think about paediatric speech pathology just because we're a peds podcast
2: i think a lot of the strategies that i was employing myself in terms of engaging with children didn't really change i just understand why i was doing them i guess understanding that better i've always been with other neurodivergent kids, which makes a lot more sense now. Yes. But it's just understanding why that's the case. Yeah. I definitely think my skills in advocating mm. for other potentially neurodivergent children is probably a bit better now, and I'm kind of more invested in being able yes. to have those difficult conversations with parents. Yeah. Obviously, at the end of the day, we can't diagnose, no. but like, I'm very for saying, this is what I'm seeing. Yes. It's not a good thing, it's not a bad thing, it's just it's what I'm seeing and we need to have this conversation. I think that's probably been the biggest change.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mim and I have just done a series on neurodiversity affirming practice and we've talked a lot about teaching self-advocacy skills and teaching about neurotypes. Do you feel like in your paediatric placement that there is still an emphasis on making neurodivergent children appear neurotypical or did anything happen like that that made you kind of feel uncomfortable
2: um I know you have the, to
0: speak carefully
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> the only real thing that Ivan can was I didn't end up seeing this client but we had a parent reach out asking if we could help their child with eye contact. Mm. That was their only goal. They had yep. no language, no social yep. communication concerns. It was just eye contact. And my supervisor came to me and was, oh, I know this is an interest area for you. Do we still mm. do that? Mm. And I, was, I didn't realise people were still looking for services that targeted mm. like just that, yep. which was a bit of a weird experience. <laughs> I felt like we were so far past mm. that. As a Mm, professional, but I guess it takes so long for the research to get into actual practice. Yes.
0: Yeah. When you graduate. Are, Are you hoping to work with kids, Ellen? Yeah. I think when you you graduate, you will absolutely see that there is a long way to go (laughs) in both of our professions. And it's (laughs) not a criticism. It's just exactly what you say. We know that on average, it takes 10 years from an article being published to that being commonplace in practice. And so we know that there's that delay. And I guess for Mim and I, part of the aim of our podcast is to target the early adopters because we know that there's always a subset of every profession who are going Mm -hmm. to adopt research and principles of intervention early. That's our real jam and that's the people that we're talking to. Um, It's an amazing experience.
1: And that leads very nicely onto our third question. Because you've nearly graduated and you have done a number of placements, what advice would you give allied health practitioners to adopt a more neurodiversity affirming framework or even just thinking about your own practice going ahead? What are some things that you feel are going to be really important to your own practice? I
2: think the main thing is just remembering to treat every child as an individual as if they're the first child you've ever seen walking through the door. Obviously there's going to be patterns of behaviours or certain presentations that people with the same diagnosis are going to have. Every single child is going to be different and have different goals and be in a different family set up in terms of what the family's wanting and what's going to be appropriate for the child. There's so much variability and I think it's just really advocating for what's going to be best for that child now and setting them up to be able to live a successful life in the future, whatever that looks like for them. Mm.
1: Mm. That is really lovely. I love the like treat every child like Mm. it's the first child that's walked into your room Mm. and not coming in with preconceived ideas. That is excellent. Is there anything that you're looking for in a job or you're looking for in a, a boss really, or you're hoping that they will adopt from you just some concepts or ideas that you think? are important
2: all the way through my degree my kind of goal of where to end up is uh, working with children with complex communication needs so that population obviously has a lot of neurodivergent clients within it so yeah I guess I'd be hoping that I'd be able to use my personal experience and kind of just be able to relate in a way that neurotypical clinicians can't to my clients and their families. A lot of families come in, they're really scared and they've been told a lot of really negative things and it's just not been a positive experience for them. And a really great thing that we get to do as part of allied health is kind of come in and say, yeah, but look at all the things I can do and look at all the plans we can make to support them to be able to do those things that everyone said that they can't do. Having the freedom to work in that space is something that I'm really looking for going forwards.
0: Mm, And Ellen, I always say it is our privilege to walk alongside families, exactly as you've just said. I often say to families, I don't have the answers either, but let's work together to figure them out. And can I just say, I think you are a double whammy threat because not only are you autistic, but you are a sibling of someone with a disability and you would not believe how many, I mean, you probably will because there's probably heaps in your university degree, but I know that there are lots of siblings who who have disabilities who end up in allied health because of their own childhood experience and going to therapy and seeing their brother or sister go go to therapy and I think that that yes you are neurodivergent and you have that amazing unique perspective but also you have the perspective mm-hmm. of somebody with significant developmental challenges as well and so I think that gives you another unique perspective on therapy
1: yeah it's pretty amazing and I think creates that insight and that empathy yes as well for families and for families
0: as a unit not just the person um with Mm -hmm. a disability for sure yeah Mm -hmm. well whoever employs you is going to be one lucky person Ellen (laughs) (laughs) is there anything else that you want to share you know Primarily our listeners are paediatric OTs. Is there anything else, and I'm thinking particularly anything else you want to share about these high masking girls and Mm -hmm. maybe some of the early warning signs to look out for as Mm paediatric OTs? a lot of the
2: autistic traits that i had throughout my whole life were kind of attributed to other things yep. but none of them fully met it and fully yep. explained everything yep. there's a lot of things looking back a lot of sensory stuff sensory
0: oh, like, sensitivities like yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah yeah like yep. very sensitive to just everything didn't like noise yep. can't handle strong tastes or smells Tags, or socks yeah mm. yeah mm-hmm. and a lot of things like that looking back it was like oh she just doesn't like that It's like, oh, nobody actually stopped to ask the questions of
0: why. Why? Yeah. So
2: I I think it's like looking deeper.
0: Yeah. Can I ask Ellen, because I have a few girls in a similar situation who I am in the process of helping get a diagnosis, but did some of those sensory sensitivities come with obsessions and or compulsions?
2: Yeah, I do have OCD as well. That was probably one of the first diagnoses I ever got. I got that when I was around 12. So one of the ones that I've had the longest is things just need to feel right. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily the symmetry that I'll have to tap something a certain number of times. Otherwise it just won't feel right within my body.
0: And it's really interesting because I've had a number of girls over the years with a very similar presentation. Mm -hmm. And I often say to parents, yes, we can call it OCD, but also we know that restricted and repetitive behaviours are one of the criteria of the DSM-5. So yep. actually is it anxiety and sensory processing mm-hmm. sensitivity and OCD or is it actually just autism and that's all three things because mm-hmm. we know that in the DSM-5 you have to have all three things mm-hmm. in order to meet the diagnostic criteria. Yep. Yeah thank you that's really helpful.
1: From some of the articles I was reading talked about microaggression so the perfect mm-hmm. One you brought up was that eye contact. I was in the boat of I don't need to work on eye contact, mm-hmm. but I do know that I'd finish an activity with a child, or I expect them when they finish to look up at me to mm-hmm. indicate to me that, oh, okay, you're done with that. And I wouldn't demand that of them, but mm-hmm. I know subconsciously I was looking for that. Is there anything within either just in your life or in your experience as a speech pathology student that you've seen some of those subtle things that people may not? pick up
2: on? I definitely think it's a lot of those social communication skills that we don't explicitly get taught but if you don't do them people kind of notice and think you're oh they're a bit weird or they're a bit rude. I've been told a lot of times that I come off as quite arrogant or aloof and it's just my communication style. I had no idea until someone brought it up so I was actually quite glad when someone told me because I was okay that's what you think. (laughs) you know, that clarifies a few things because some people just don't bring it up. They just make assumptions and assume, oh, Ellen doesn't want to talk to me because she's not looking at me while we're talking. Mm -hmm. I was oh, actually, that's not the case. I am listening. Just That's not what my brain does to be able to listen. So it's a lot of those things that I guess people who aren't working in the field probably don't think about and don't know. They don't realize there's a kind of that bias.
0: I think even people um, who are working in the field. Ellen, yeah. Yes. <laughs> you're being very kind. <laughs> yeah. Mim, if you don't have anything else, Ellen, I just want to ask a fun question before we finish. Can you please tell us your favorite topic to info dump on? <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> or a number of topics, your favorite oh, few. <laughs> Funnily enough, speech
2: pathology. Yeah, one interesting.
0: Of yeah, yeah. I think
2: that kind of yeah. covered the autism for quite a while. Yes. Only because I it was kind of a few months in and I was like, oh, I really do love verbs. And it, yes. everyone was, oh, that's a bit weird. Yeah. And I was like, oh, but we're all studying speech. And they're like, Yeah, but we don't love it yeah. that much. Yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> it yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. I have a neurodivergent 13 year old and words are absolutely one of her favorite things to yeah. info dump about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And Harry Potter. So I don't know if there's any others for you. Yes. Did you? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you so much for your generosity and your warmth and your honesty. We really, really appreciate it. And I know that I will be... Recommending this episode, not just to other paediatric OTs, but also to some of my clients, my beautiful autistic girl, mums and dads and grannies, mm-hmm. because I think you are a wonderful example of an autistic woman who is bright and knowledgeable and clever and intuitive. So thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. No, thank and
2: you.
1: congratulations. When are you graduating?
2: My last assignment is due the 22nd of November, so nearly there.
1: Yay!
0: And if you're an employer out there (laughs) looking for a speech pathologist in 2024.
1: Especially in, well in communication, blog, augmented communication and <laughs> yes, complex that's communication right. needs. Complex that's communication, with, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you can even put put on your CV that you participated in a podcast about applying research into mm-hmm. practice mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. disseminating research into li- and lived experiences. Like that's all oh, mm-hmm. great yep. buzzwords. Because, words. Like, so anything else you wanted to add, Ellen? No, not
2: really. I think we covered everything
1: yeah thank you guys yeah absolutely
0: our pleasure thank you thank you so much um stay in touch won't you
1: yes (laughs) Mm. please talk to you soon okay and good night to our listeners as well see ya (laughs) bye
0: We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community, we pay our respect to their elders past and present
1: and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.